All right, what's up, guys? We're going to be back in the book of Luke today. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. Um, if you've got your phone, just go ahead and flip there in the Bible app. Um, we're going to read uh, just a couple of verses here from the middle of Luke 7. Um, but let me just open us up in prayer. Lord, I um, I know we're coming to the end of a long year, and I just pray, Lord, that um, you would sustain us with your perfect and your holy word. Um, that we would learn to to rest um, in this this gift that you have given us, that we would learn to find hope here, and um, that these words that we read would be life uh, life changing, that you would use them to transform us. So we just I ask Lord that this would be no ordinary um, sermon, that this would not be. Um, you know, just sort of mundane online church stuff, but Lord, that you would really, you would speak to your people um, and that you would do that today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Kayla and John told me uh, they just started watching that TV show, The Crown, and uh, the new season came out. And so I decided um, in all of my free time with the kids and everything, just kidding. Uh, but I decided I was going to binge watch it too. So over the last few weeks, I rewatched the all four seasons. So I saw the three that I had seen, and then I um, uh, watched the new one, the fourth season that just came out. Anyway, there's an episode in um, season three that is absolutely gut-wrenching. And um, it's the story of the landslide um, in uh, Aberfan. Uh, in 1966 and there was like a it was a coal mining operation i think it was anyway part of the mountain there was a town below the mountain and, and up on the mountains while the mining stuff seemed like it was happening and um, part of the mountain slid down the hill into the town while all the people were at work or at home but the landslide hit a school and um, 116 kids died and 28 adults died and it was this you know, big tragedy. Well, anyway, I don't know how accurately The Crown tells all these different stories, but um, there was one scene in that episode of The Crown that was absolutely gut-wrenching. And what happened was they showed the school where the landslide hit. And, you know, the teacher, I forget, he was dismissing class or something, whatever it was, he was teaching the class. And he looks up out the window and he sees the landslide coming down the hill. And... I, I thought that actor did a pretty phenomenal job. In in his face, you can tell the panic when he realizes we're all about to die and there's literally nowhere to go. Um, there's nothing he can do. And I think he shouts something like, everybody get under the tables or something, you know. Like um, I've heard people say they used to do the nuclear bomb drills back in the 50s. Everybody under your desks like that will stop a nuclear bomb. But anyway, um, so uh, that, that part of... Um, that episode always stuck with me. Here's this guy looking out the window at this landslide coming down the hill. And he has maybe five seconds before he dies. And he knows he's going to die. And he knows all these kids he's with are going to die. And there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. Well, the thing is, uh, we've all got that landslide coming. Um, for It's not five seconds, right? But the landslide of death is coming. Death is coming for all of us. Um, one of my favorite preacher jokes, you know, is that one out of one people die, right? The numbers are staggering. Um, everybody is going to die. And so how do we deal with that? How do we, how do we think about that? Um, how do we handle that? 
Um, well, throughout history, people have handled this in a lot of different ways. The ancient Egyptians had um, their beliefs, and one of them was that at the end of your, your time here on earth, you would die, and your heart would be weighed against a feather. And any heart that weighed more than a feather wasn't fit to enter the underworld. They said you didn't want your heart heavy with misdeeds and um, you know the things that you've done wrong. Um, that's actually similar to what Islam teaches, but not exactly the same. But the, the idea of the scales, the good versus the bad. Um, Socrates, the, uh, the Greek uh, philosopher, who was executed in Athens um, for a lot of the stuff that he taught, and, you know, probably wrongly, wrongly executed for just being an open-minded thinker. Uh, anyway, he said when he was talking about death, he said, look, there's really only two possibilities. Um, either death, number one, is a dreamless sleep, or number two, death is a passage into another life. And so either way, he says, there's nothing to fear with death. And in his version of the afterlife, you don't have a body. And so um, you shouldn't spend a lot of time on earth worrying about your body. You should spend time worrying about your mind because that's the thing that's going to carry on. That's the thing that's going to uh, continue into the afterlife. Um, another philosopher named Epicurus, who was a little bit after Socrates, um, he believed in what we call annihilation. And so he said, look, um, when you're dead, you're just going to completely disappear. You will cease to exist. And he said, things are only good or bad if you feel them, like if you feel them happening to you. But annihilation feels like nothing because you won't be there. So death, really then, he says, is nothing to fear. And sure, annihilation is a bummer that you're just going to completely disappear, but you won't be there to care. So why worry about it now? Um, a 20th uh, century author, uh, Lug, <laughs> let me say this, Ludwig Wichten, Wid. Genstein, Wittgenstein, all right, I'll say that three times fast. Um, he echoed the same idea when he said, um, he talked about how death is not an event of your life, right? It's something that happens after your life. Your life has a span and then death happens and you're gone. And so um, why, why fear it if you're going to be annihilated? Um, Epicurus, jumping back to the Greek philosopher, he also talked about... Um, people fearing punishment after death, people who fear some sort of judgment. And he said, his answer to this was so shallow. He basically just said, look, the gods don't care enough about you to punish you. So there's really nothing here to worry about. Um, jumping forward to the 20th century, another American philosopher, uh, Thomas Nagel, he said this, he, he talked in talking about death, he addressed this problem. A lot of people a lot of folks think that the real bummer about death is not what will happen to you, but all the stuff that you're going to miss out on. And so all this cool stuff is going to happen, right? And so if you die right now, you're going to miss out on the first Mars missions. You're going to miss out on Apple's AR glasses or whatever, flying cars, whatever it is that you think is going to be really cool. You're going to miss out on some of this stuff. You're going to miss out on family events that you won't be there to see. You won't be able to watch your great, great, great grandchildren grow up. You know, whatever it is, you're not going to be there. But Nagel says... Well, you weren't there for a lot of the stuff that happened before you were born, and you don't sit up all night worrying about that stuff, right? You weren't there when they, uh, you know, for these famous battles or all this really cool stuff that happened in history, right? Um, you weren't there for that stuff. So if you don't sweat the stuff from the past, why are you sweating the stuff from the future? So that's, that's another sort of take on death. Um, another one coming from Eastern philosophy is uh, the Chinese philosopher, uh, uh, let me give this a shot. All right, I don't even want to say this because I know there's a bunch of you guys who speak Chinese watching this. Uh, Zhuangzi, I think is how you say it. 
something like that. Anyway, I'll put his name up on the thing and you guys can email me how badly I butchered that name. Um, but anyway, what he said was death is just a part of your life cycle. And so fearing death is really dumb because it's like fearing that your babies that you have will grow up and become toddlers. Moving from baby to toddler, toddler to, you know, older kid to preteen to teenager to adult, that's the life cycle. And so he says, death is the end of the life cycle, but it's part of the life cycle. And so fearing it is absurd because, and he talks about the inevitable, right? Death is inevitable. Now, from these different perspectives and these different philosophies, it kind of seems like death is no big deal, right? People, right, they believe, well, you're just going to disappear. So why sweat it? You know, or what? all these different things we just talked about. Um, is that how you see death? Is that how folks around you see death? Is that our experience? I don't think so. Um, in 1974, there was a guy named Ernest Becker who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book that honestly I haven't read. I've just read about it. It's in my to-do list to someday maybe get around to read this book. Um, but anyway, the book's called The Denial of Death. And um, he says... Uh, that people are generally terrified of death and the idea of death. And here's a quote from his book. He says, The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. Right? And so a lot of his book talks about how do we deal with that fear. People are, are scared to, well, scared to death, right? <laughs> you know, we're scared of death. One conclusion that he draws is that people take on what he called immoral, um, immortality projects. Um, things that people spend their lives trying to do things that will last after their death. So they invest in family or, you know, art projects or whatever, things that will last past their time. Um, but basically, he also says that we're all just really good at pretending like it's not going to happen, right? Not letting the idea of death bubble up to the surface of our minds. If we can just put death over here and just pretend like it's not going to happen, then um, I really only have to worry about that for a few weeks right before I die. But if we're honest... Death is coming down the hill at us, uh, just like the landslide at Aberfan. And if you really think about it, death is terrifying. Someday, you are going to get sick beyond medical help. And the cancer is going to eat away at your lungs. Uh, your heart will break down. Infection will spread. Whatever it is, it might be something quick. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe a piece of an airplane falls off and lands on you while you're walking down the street. Who knows, right? Whatever it is, car accident, something, whatever, something's going to happen to you that is going to end your life here on earth, right? You are actually going to die and they're going to take your body. If you look at your hands right now, stick your hands out in front of you, that hand, they're going to take that hand and the rest of your body and they're going to put it in the ground, put it in the furnace, whatever, and generations will pass by and you are going to be completely forgotten, that right there is the truth, but it's a hard pill to swallow. That you are going to die and probably on this earth you're going to be forgotten. But what's that's kind of contemplating our own morality, which is terrifying. But what's even worse than the fact that I'm going to die is also thinking about how people around me that I love are going to die. Um, instances in history or you know just around us of somebody losing, let's say, like a child um, is absolutely terrifying. There was like the 17th century um, Puritan, John Owen. Um, he outlived 11 of his, all 11 of his children. All 11 of his kids died before they reached adulthood. Um, there's a blogger, Christian blogger, author guy, Tim Chalice. Um, his son just died like about a month ago. You know, I think he was a teenager. Um, I haven't heard all the details, but I was reading a little bit about it. One commentator um, pointed out, man, like just seeing Tim's uh, 
pain and anguish. This guy said, makes me glad that the death of a child is now not the norm, right? It, it doesn't happen very often. It's a lot more rare than it used to be. But throughout history, right, the death, people had a lot of children because most of them didn't make into adulthood because of just sickness, you know? Today, we're going to read about a woman who had seen death take her entire family, right? And we're going to see Jesus's heart, his gut reaction to her situation, right? But before we jump into the text in Luke 7 today, um, we're going to jump back a little bit and we're going to read some from um, the Old Testament. So last week we talked about Naaman and Elisha and Elisha healing Naaman. And this story, the this whole section here is uh, all the way up to, to, well, next week we're going to do the Christmas sermon, but the week after that is all could have been one sermon about Jesus um, in the pattern of these prophets, right? And so this whole section is about his uh, connection, his fulfillment of these prophetic stories. And so the first one I want to read is Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Now, what happened was Elisha was a prophet. I want to read this one first, but he was actually the second prophet. Elijah came first and then Elisha. And this Shunammite woman um, built an apartment for Elisha because he was always traveling around and he needed somewhere to stay. So she built him this little apartment, and one day he comes up to her and says, hey, what do you what do you want out of life? And she says, oh, I don't know, I'm fine. And he says, well, basically, I'm paraphrasing. I noticed you don't have a son, so why don't, you know, I'll, you know, you're going to have this miracle son. And, and you know, she's kind of like, oh, no way. And then he says, yeah, you will. So she, she ends up having this miracle son. And then 2 Kings, let's see, 2 Kings 4, I want to read this whole section here. Um, the child grew and one day went out to his father and the harvesters. Suddenly he complained to his father, my head, my head. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. So he picked him up and took him to his mother. And the child sat on her lap until noon um, and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, the apartment that he had built up, she had built upstairs for him, shut him in and left. She summoned her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so I can hurry to the man of God and come back again. But he said, why go to him today? It's not new moon or Sabbath. She replied, it's all right. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, go fast. Don't slow the pace for me unless I tell you. So she came to the mount, um, she came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her at the distance, he said to his attendant Gehazi, go, there's the Shunammite woman. Run out and meet her and ask, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? And she answered, it's all right. And when she came to the man of God at the mountain, she clung to his feet. Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in severe anguish, and the Lord has hidden it from me. He hasn't told me. Then she said, Did I not ask my Lord? For, did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say, Don't lie to me? She's saying, I didn't even ask for this son. You pushed this whole idea on me as a present. So Elisha and Gehazi, uh, so Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your mantle under your belt. Take my staff with you and go. If you meet anyone, don't stop to greet him. And if a man greets you, don't answer him. Then place my staff on the boy's face. The boy's mother said to Elisha, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went ahead of them and placed the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or sign of life in him. So he went back to meet Elisha and told him the boy didn't wake up. When Elisha got to the house, he discovered the boy lying dead in his bed. Uh, so he went in, closed the door behind him, behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and he laid on the boy, he put him mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. 
And when he bent down over him, the boy's flesh became warm. Elisha got up, went into the house, and paced back and forth. Then he went up and bent uh, bent down over him again. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. He called her, and she came, and then Elisha said, Pick up your son. She came, fell at his feet, bowed down to the ground. She picked up her son, and she left. So there's the story where there's the, the son of the Shunammite woman dies, and so she runs and gets Elisha. He goes back, he prays, and the boy... Um, the boy comes back to life. So that's the Elisha story. Now let's jump back and do the Elijah story. So this one's a little bit shorter. Um, but uh, the background to this story is after Elijah prayed that there would be no rain and all that stuff, um, uh, there was a famine in the land and he, he meets this woman and um, he says to her, hey, can you make me some lunch? And she says, look, all I have is this little bit of food left and I, I can't afford to give you any. I was just going to eat it as a last meal and then me and my son were going to just go over there and die. It's like a really sad story. And he says to her, well, here's the deal. You give me some and then go back and get some for yourself and we'll just keep doing that and God will keep providing it and it'll keep showing up. That's exactly what happened. And so the Lord saved the three of them and, um, you know, they acted in faith and he saved the three of them. But then the boy dies. So let's watch what happens. First Kings uh, seventeen seventeen. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness got worse until he stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, Man of God, what have you, uh, what do you have against me? Have you come uh, to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? So she's asking, Why are you, are you here just so that God will look at my sin and then kill my son? But Elijah said to her, Give me your son. So he took him from her arms. That is an absolutely gut-wrenching verse. Because the son has died, but the son is in the arms of the mother who's probably weeping and wailing. And so Elijah goes, takes the corpse. He brought him upstairs. Uh, sorry, he brought him to the upstairs room where he was staying and he laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and he said, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy come to life again. So the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy, uh, the boy's life came into him again and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy up, uh, took the boy, brought him down from the upstairs room into the house and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. So, we have these two instances of the prophet raising the son. In the second one, there's a lot more of a connection with the story we're going to read, but raising the son of a helpless woman. And uh, so, I'm, okay, so the reason I read those is I really want you to keep those stories in mind as we walk through this passage today. Um, so I just read those in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Now we're going to jump to the ESV. We're going to walk through our text today. So we're going to start here in verse 11. So this is chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So afterward is just sort of a time descriptor to say sometime after last week, because these stories are connected. Last last week, he healed the, centuri uh, the centurion slave, centurion servant. Um, and so these stories are tied together. And so now he shows up, he's in Capernaum, and last week he's in Capernaum and doing all this stuff. This week he's kind of traveling around. Um, he goes to this little town called Nain. Um, this is the only time that this 
uh, town appears in the Bible. Um, no, it's There's not a lot known about it. It was probably just a small village somewhere. Um, a lot of people think there's a town that a lot of people think this is about 20 miles uh, to the southwest of Capernaum. Okay, So Jesus is traveling around. He's doing his ministry, and he takes this big crowd with him. Right, So there's this crowd following Jesus, a lot of people there. Um, verse, where are we? Verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, so he comes up to the town gate. The town gate in the ancient world was a lot like what we would say the civic center. It was sort of the center of town, uh, their version of city hall. And um, so this Jesus walks up, and he's probably just coming into the town, and um, there's a funeral happening. Now, when we think about funerals, this is one of those things. We have to get the idea of Western culture out of the Bible. The Bible was not written to Western people. It was not written about Western people, um, and it wasn't written in the West, right? This happened in the Near East. And so when we think of a funeral, what do we think of? We think of wearing black, you know, you wear black and uh, you dress up and you go and um, the pastor says some stuff, you sing some sad songs, people share. It's a very somber event, right? There's not a lot of noise. There's not a lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotion, but there's not a lot of like outward bursts and Okay, the Near Eastern funerals were the exact opposite. Near Eastern funerals were like a huge deal. I mean, to the point that they would hire um, whalers, right? They would hire mourners, people to scream during a funeral. They would hire musicians to play sad music. Everybody from town would show up. Um, And the last part of the funeral was the actual burial. So saying, it's kind of tricky to say, well, in the ancient Near East, this is how they did funerals. Because, you know, I mean, they were probably different from place to place and region to region or whatever. But always the last part was the actual burial. And that's what Jesus is walking up on here. The end of the funeral, the actual part where they're carrying this guy out. And so he was being carried out. These graveyards were uh, outside the city because of ritual purity laws. This is also why Jesus was crucified outside the city. They didn't want to do it in the city of um, Jerusalem. And so Jesus comes up, there's this funeral happening. He sees this huge crowd and he sees the the woman. Now this woman, she was a widow. Um, she, which means, if you really think about it, she had walked this exact road before to bury her husband, right? This was at least round two. She may have had other children who died, but this was at least her second time now going through this pain and this anguish. Um, now she's, so she's buried her husband. Now she's burying, um, oh wait, does it say her only son? I think it does say that. Uh, yeah, the only son. So maybe there wasn't other kids. Maybe there were sisters. I don't know. Um, but, uh, she, she's gone through this before she's burying her only son and, her situation now is dire. Apart from the emotional pain, if you can imagine basically your entire family dying, um, they didn't have social security. They didn't have like this, this government safety net. She didn't have a retirement account. Um, and in this world, this woman now was in a serious uh, situation here. How was she going to take? Uh, how is she going to take care of herself? And so Jesus walks up. And he probably, somebody in the crowd tells him what's going on. This woman, she's part of our town. She's part of our synagogue. Her husband just died. um, And now her only son has died. And look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. So the Lord saw her. This wasn't a planned meeting, right? Jesus was coming into town for another reason to, to preach and do his miracles and all that stuff. 
Um, and his giant crowd coming into town meets this giant crowd. And when he finds out what happens, he looks at this woman, he hears her situation. It says that he has compassion on her. Now, in English, that word kind of has a wide range of meanings. In Greek, this is a very strong word. And what it means is like he felt it in his guts. Um, I looked up the definition in Greek. It says to be affected deeply in one's inner being, right? Now, this word here, this word compassion, that's translated compassion, the Greek word, it's used 12 times in the Greek New Testament. Ten of those times that it's used, it's used to describe Jesus having compassion on somebody, basically right before he heals them or does a miracle for them. The only other two times it's used, Jesus uses it um, in a parable. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy had compassion on the injured man, and the prodigal son, he had compassion on his son. So this is a Jesus word about how deeply Jesus felt for this woman. Um, and so he goes up to the widow who's mourning and crying and weeping in the middle of all this noise. He walks up and um, I'm guessing he put his arms around her and gave her a hug. And uh, this is one of those times where um, I wish that the text can, could convey tone of voice because it says that he tells her, do not weep. That seems harsh and cold, but everything we know about Jesus is that it wasn't harsh and it wasn't cold. Um, I bet that this was less, suck it up, um, this is not that big of a deal, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Stop crying, you know, uh, whatever. <laughs> um, and this is more like, look, I know you're sad now, but watch this, right? In, in about 10 seconds, you're going to have no reason to cry. Verse 14, you'll see why. Then he came up and he touched the beer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So when it says he touched the beer, it's not that they were drinking, right? Um, at the, uh, you know, this wasn't a brew house. They weren't drinking at the funeral. A beer is like a funeral plank. It's like an open coffin. Um, you know, you see this in all those like, um, I don't know, like those Viking movies or Lord of the Rings or whatever, where they carry the dead soldier king or whatever out. So, they, you know, there wasn't a closed coffin. That's not what they had. They had, so it was just a plank with some poles. And so Jesus walks up and he touches this. He touches the coffin, the beer. Um, now, we've talked a bunch before in Luke about clean, the idea of ritual purity, clean, unclean. This, is, this has to do with that. Touching, um, the idea with clean and unclean, and you can go back and watch the Bible Project videos on Leviticus. They explain this really well. But the idea is, uh, it has to do with the things of death will make you unclean because the world is not supposed to supposed to be like this. And so the idea of unclean means you've come in contact with mostly with something that is is dead. And so the idea is if you touch somebody who's died or you touch, you know, like I was just, I just read Leviticus this week um, on my Bible reading plan. And, you know, there's so much stuff. If you touch this dead animal, if you touch this, this sickness, this skin disease, whatever it is, you come in contact with these things of death. It, you're ritually impure and you have to go through these 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 um, these other rituals to make yourself clean, to make yourself pure again. And so with everybody else, that's how it works. You touch the dead thing, you become unclean. But with Jesus, the picture is really the opposite, right? He touches the unclean and then they become clean, right? He touches the leper, the leper becomes clean. He, he reaches in and, and he touches the impure and makes it pure. He reaches in and, and darkness becomes light. Here he literally reaches out and touches the coffin, and then everybody stops, right? You know, you hear the brake noise. Everybody stops and looks at him. What did he just do? Why would he do that? This is a huge no-no in the Jewish religion, if you can avoid it. But there's more, right? He doesn't just touch the coffin. 
he leans down and he talks to the dead guy. Young man, I say to you, uh, you know, like, hey, dude, get up, right? Young man, arise. Can you sit up for me? That's basically what that means. Or can you stand up for me? Right? He just speaks it. He says it so uh, matter of fact. Hey, bud, get up. Now, does he get up? Right? The suspense is killing me. Spoilers, he does. Verse 15, and the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. So the guy sits up and starts talking. Hamlet spoke of death as the undiscovered, uh, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler ever returns. Well, sorry, Hamlet, you're wrong. This is the guy. This guy came back to life. And he sits up off of his coffin, in the middle of his coffin, and he starts talking. Um, what did he say? I don't know. It's not recorded. In fact, every time somebody comes back to life in scripture, and uh, best I can tell, I looked this up this week, best I can tell, I think there's six of them that are recorded like this. So today we're reading literally half of the times that this happens in the Bible. Um, None of the times that these guys come back, uh, that these folks, there's like, um, you know, what, two, there's a woman, there's a little girl, a couple of guys. Anyway, every time these people come back, it doesn't say what they said. Their, their words are not recorded. Now, that really puts a damper on the heaven tourism books. You guys know these heaven tourism books where somebody says, oh, I died and I went to heaven and I came back. Um, now let me sell a bunch of books about it. Okay. Um, and one really interesting thing is how come none of these books are anything like each other? If all these people went to heaven and came back, uh, why are none of their books the same, right? Why is heaven not the same in any of their books? Um, the thing is, when people ask me about these books, and over the years being a pastor, I've had a lot of folks come up to me and say, hey, what do you think of this book? You know, Well, I know at least one of those kids said he made the whole thing up now that he's an adult. He's completely retracted everything he said. He said he just did it to make his parents happy. Um, uh, but anyway, what I always tell people is you don't need those books, right? We have scripture. Scripture is what God has told us about the new heavens and new earth, and it's enough. And so to come to say, well, to really believe in heaven... I need some six-year-old to die and then tell me that he saw his grandma. It doesn't really make any sense. It, it really demeans scripture. And so with these guys, even in scripture, it's not really ever even said what they, what they said about where they were. Where was Lazarus? I always say, I bet Lazarus woke up and said, oh man, right? I'm back here in this sinful fallen world. Do you know where I just was? Um, I do actually know one person who has a story like this where she says she died um, and she sat down. And Jesus told her, you've still got more work to do. And she was clinically dead. And, uh, you know, she woke up and she lived, you know, she's still alive. It's been 40 years. But here's the thing. Here's how I actually do believe this woman. Um, And the reason I believe her is because I knew her probably 25 years before I ever heard the story. I've only heard the story once um, in a private setting. She's never really told it publicly. And she didn't try to sell a book. And afterwards, what happened was she woke up and then devoted like 20 something years of her life working with AIDS patients. You know, she came back and she had, you know, anyway, so um, if it ends up being just a dream, God spoke to her in a dream, whatever, I don't know. Um, But I'm not basing my entire, what do I believe about heaven on this woman's testimony? So anyway, back to this, the guy wakes up, he starts talking. We don't know what he says. And then it says that Jesus gave him to his mother. That is the exact phrase from the Elijah and the widow at Zarephath, literally plagiarized from the book of 1 Kings. And that was the point of all of this. 
was for Jesus to give the boy, the guy, we don't know how old he was, that word boy, you know, man, whatever, is like a wide range. So this could be a 10-year-old, could be a 30-year-old, um, but gives the son back to the mother. That's the point, right? He had compassion on the mother. He did this for her. He didn't do this for him. Um, but there was this side effect too. Remember, two crowds now are watching this. There's two crowds here. Jesus brought a crowd with him and uh, there was a crowd because it was this big giant funeral. And so look what happens. Verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has, and God has visited his people. So fear seized them all and they glorified God. Now we have this idea um, that everybody in the ancient world was an idiot and superstitious and just believed everything spiritual and miracles. And sometimes we treat these ancient people with what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, right? We think they just must have easily believed everything that they were ever told, but that's really not true. And when these people see this, they're in awe. They're blown away. They can't believe it. And even like I said, the Bible is not full of these stories. This was not a regular occurrence. I think there's six of these throughout the entire scripture. Um, and so when these guys see it, they're, they don't know what, they're just, you know, they're blown away and they, they praise God for what they've seen. And in glorifying God, they say two things about Jesus. The first is that he's a great prophet. A great prophet has arisen among us. So everybody knew those Elijah and Elisha stories. Everybody um, that would have been, uh, you know, part of a synagogue. Um, I, I Spoilers, right? I already gave this illustration on our Zoom call this week. But um, these were national stories. It's like here in America, if somebody mentions, you don't have to say the name Rosa Parks, right? If you just say something about the front of the bus or the back of the bus, everybody knows we're talking, everybody's mind immediately goes to thinking about Rosa Parks. When somebody says the phrase, the back of the bus, we think of our national hero, Rosa Parks, who had the guts to stand up to an evil and unjust system and sit in the front of the bus and spark this whole movement. Um, you, you don't need to say her name. It's the same way here. Right? As soon as this happens, everybody starts making the connection between Jesus and these two stories um, in the Old Testament. The only two stories in the Old Testament where somebody comes back to life like this. Um, this dude, they see Jesus and they say, this dude, this guy, he's just like these prophets. And the second thing they say is that God had, has visited his people. Now, the prophets that wrote stuff down, Elisha and Elijah didn't write anything down, but the later prophets who did write stuff down used that same language of the visitation of God to talk about the coming of the Messiah. And so, we, won't, we don't want to read too much into this. These people are not making a theological statement about the deity of Christ. Um, they're using prophetic language to say, things are happening, right? It's time. Now, I want you to remember that. I'm going to kind of leave that there. Remember that for two weeks from now, because next week we're going to do it like a Christmas sermon. Um, but just remember that these people see what Jesus has done. They say, wow, God is visiting his people. And then verse 17 then is the natural conclusion to all of this. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. So the report spreads. Of course it did, right? This guy just came back to life. Uh, put yourself in this story. One of the things I love to do is to use my imagination. And I think God gave us imaginations on purpose. And we can put ourselves into the biblical text. And what I always tell people is, I want you to do that. I don't want you to add details or use your imagination to create a whole new meaning for this text, but really imagine what it was like to be there. I mean, imagine this happened today. Imagine you went to an open casket funeral. Guy died in his early 20s, let's say. You go down to the church or the funeral home or whatever it is, and you sit down and... You look up at the front, you know, there's the two rows, 
two groups with the aisle in the middle, and you walk. You sit kind of up front, and you look forward, and uh, you see this corpse just completely absent of color, absent of life. And this may be with somebody you knew. You go up, and you do the thing where you kneel in front of it, and you pray a prayer, whatever it was, you know, go sit back down. And you just sit there, you know, at the viewing or whatever it is. And this guy's mom, whose husband just died too, is just, you just can't imagine her pain, right? And she's up front and she's weeping and she's crying and everybody else is kind of just hushed. And then the pastor gets up and he starts to say a few words in Psalm 23. Um, And then maybe, let's say, a famous preacher walks in and uh, he just says, wow, I was... uh, you know, I was walking by and I saw this f- funeral going on. He walks up to the mom and he gets down on a knee. He says, I know you're going through some pain right now, but don't worry about it. And he walks over to the casket and you think he's going to say a little prayer. But in a loud voice that everybody can hear, he says, hey, dude, get up. And then all of a sudden, the dead guy sits up and he looks over to the crowd and he looks at you and you lock eyes with this dead guy who is now moving and you see the the color of his face change and he he, he kind of catches his bearings and he puts his arms down he climbs up slowly out of the casket and he walks over to his mom and then the famous preacher takes his hand takes the mom's hand puts them together and he says here you go don't worry about it anymore and what would you do if that really happened what would you do? You would go and you would tell everybody that you know. I was at this funeral and some dude walked in and the guy came back to life. Now, here's the thing. There were two crowds that saw this happen, right? Two crowds. There was Jesus' crowd who was following him because they liked his teaching. They liked what he did for the centurion. They were probably there at the Sermon on the Plain. And then there's the crowd at the town of Nain. There are three stories, right, like I said, where Jesus brings somebody back from the dead. There's this one, there's Jairus' daughter, Jairus' daughter, and there's Lazarus. And in every instance of those, he does it in front of a group of people. Um, the apologist, uh, an apologist is somebody who, like, defends the faith. And the, the church father, the apologist, his name was, there was one, his name was, um, sorry, Quadratus, I think is how you say that. And he wrote to the emperor Hadrian. If you know Hadrian, he built the wall in, um, I think it's uh, the wall like near Scotland, uh, Hadrian's wall. Anyway, he wrote the emperor and he says, the persons uh, who were healed and um, those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were not only seen when they were healed and raised, uh, but were present also afterwards and not merely during the time that the Savior walked on earth. But after his departure also, they were still there for considerable time so that some of them even lived into our time. So what he's saying is that some of these people who came back to life, my guess is that Jairus' daughter uh, lived quite a while. He's saying, look, there were a lot of people in those crowds, and those people who came back to life lived for a while. Lazarus lived for a while. We don't know, but I assume it was a while. Um, And the point is, Jesus did this for compassion, not for fame. But there were a lot of people there, and many of them lived for a lot of years and told those stories over and over again. When I was younger... This guy, this, this apologist says, man, when I was a kid, some of these people were still around. And so that's, that's such a wonderful idea, right, is that Jesus did this in front of witnesses who could then pass these stories along. Now, um, we have the stories of Elijah and Elisha, 
and we have the story of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of differences between these stories, a lot of similarities. As we look at the Jesus story, we're meant to look back into the Old Testament and to compare them. But there's one big difference. Let me tell you what it is. I, I At first, when I was writing this sermon, I put together columns. How are these the same? How are these different? What can we learn? And I had all these different points. But I think I just want to stick to this big, big idea. When you read the story first of Elijah, what does he do when he finds out that this widow's son is dead? He throws his body on top of the boy's body, and he cries out to God for help. And that's how the kid came back to life. When Elisha goes and he prays for <clears throat> uh, the Shunammite woman's son, uh, what does he do? He goes in and he, it says he prayed to the Lord. That's the exact phrase. He prayed to the Lord. And then the Lord rose the kid from the dead. Um, with Jesus, it's different. Did you see the big difference? What did Jesus do? He walked up. He touched he touched the, the coffin, the beer, to get everybody to stop, and he just says the words, dude, get up. He has the power of life and death in himself. That's the difference. Elisha and Elijah had to appeal to a power outside of themselves to raise those kids from the dead. Jesus is the one that they were appealing to. Jesus is the one with that power. He is the one, our King Jesus, Luke is saying, our King Jesus is the one um, who has the power over life and death. Now, how does Jesus defeat death? Right, Death, we know from the gospel story, entered the world as a result of sin. And his the story of the Bible is the story of God defeating death on our behalf. And it ultimately happens at the cross. There's a story of a pastor um, from the famous 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And um, the pastor's wife died. Uh, his name was um, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He wrote a bunch of commentaries and books and stuff. Um, anyway, the um, his wife died young, I think in their 30s. And he had four kids. They had four kids. It's a really sad story. Anyway, on the way to the funeral, um, the dad pointed to a truck that passed by their car. And the shadow of the truck went over the car. And... Uh, you know, Barnhouse said to his kids, now, kids, would you rather get hit by the truck or the shadow of the truck? And all the kids said, oh, the shadow, of course. And so he says to his kids, now, that's what happened to your mother. She was hit by the shadow of the death. Only the shadow of death has passed over her because death itself ran over Jesus. That's what he told his kids on the day of their mother's funeral. We only experienced the shadow because Jesus experienced the truck. So do you see where our hope comes from? Hope in the face of the coming landslide of death? I'll be honest, death is terrifying, right? 2020 has been a year of death, right? Look at the numbers every day. We, we open up our phones and we look at the COVID page and we, wow, this is a, there's a lot of people dying around us. And there's, there's a little bit of hope with this vaccine and stuff. But hopefully this year has caused a lot of people to really start thinking about more their mortalities, have them really start thinking about death. Um, I think it was Jonathan Edwards had a, um, a list of like, he called them his resolutions. And I think that was one of his resolutions. I'm going to think about death all the time. I'm going to think about my own death all the time. Because we have to be realistic. We're all going to die. Now, to look forward to that moment when my life is going to end with no hope would fill me with dread. Right? I'm sorry, but the arguments of Socrates and Epicurus and Nagel... And Zhuangzi, I think is how you say it. Um, again, you can email me and tell me I messed that up. Um, they don't measure up. These arguments are, are empty vessels. Don't worry about death because you're going to be dead. It won't matter. Really? That's your answer? 
the biblical story says this, that everybody dies, uh, uh, everybody dies once, but only some people die twice, right? We're all going to experience the shadow of death, but only some people are going to experience the ultimate death. The first death that we experience here is just a, is a picture of the second death that comes afterwards. Our king, the gospel story says, this that we read in this book, our king has conquered death. And so someday I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to die. I'm going to leave this world. The doctor, a couple of weeks before whatever, he's going to sit me down and he's going to say, John, I'm sorry, there's no hope. There's nothing else that we can do. Or maybe a taco truck will run me over on my motorcycle. Or maybe it'll be a fire. Maybe I'll get corona. I don't know, right? I haven't been vaccinated yet. Whatever it is, I will close my eyes at some point in this world and I will open them and I will see my king, my king who conquered death. And through my death here, I will enter the life. Uh, I will enter life, life the way that it was supposed to be, right? Romans 6, 5 says this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's where the Christian hope comes from. Jesus has already risen from the dead. We have that. We're going to get to that in Luke, but we'll talk about the proofs and stuff. But we can look to Jesus, the one who, in our story now, he just resuscitated this guy. This guy eventually died again. But eventually, we're all going to receive the same kind of resurrection bodies, and we're going to live in eternal life, right? We're going to live forever in life the way that it was supposed to be. And so we don't um, fear death Almost we look forward to it. It's like Paul said, man, you know, in Philippians, I would so much rather be dead. But I think God wants me here uh, because he wants me to help you guys. But I, he, Paul says, I'd rather be dead. Right? That's the Christian hope because death here means life with Jesus because he is the one with the power over life and death, just like we saw in our text. So how does this then play into the way we live now? Um, some folks accuse Christians of looking forward to eternity so much. We have our heads in the clouds that we're no earthly good. We don't care about this life. And I think a lot of times that's probably true with a lot of followers of Jesus. If I can just get to heaven, I can cruise through this life. But that's such a misguided attitude. So let me give you two ways that this this hope, uh, this idea, um, really changes the way that we live here and now, right? The first is that we don't have to live our lives with the dread of death that everybody else has, right? We don't have to pretend like we're not going to die. We don't have to put death, bury it way down in our psyche so that we don't really think about it, right? We don't have to settle for these subpar arguments of these philosophers. The power of life and death is in the hands of our king. And it reminds me of the story where James, in the book of Acts, James was executed, um, the uh, one of the apostles, James and uh, John's brother, he was executed. And everybody liked it so much that they arrested Peter and they were going to execute Peter the next day. And um, Peter ends up being saved and uh, the angel comes in and breaks him out. But the funny part of the story is that when the angel saves Peter, he was sleeping. Now, if you were going to maybe be crucified tomorrow, I think it would be hard to get some sleep. But Peter was sleeping so soundly, right? I forget exactly the details, but I think the angel like kicked him or something, you know, had to wake him up. Hey, dude, get up. And the whole time Peter was still kind of in this groggy sleep. That's how, um, that's how comforted he was with the idea of, I don't know, it's all up to God, right? My hope is in him, not in me. So that's the first thing. We don't have to live with the dread of death. Dying is going to stink, but being dead is going to be awesome. 
All right, here's the second thing. Because of that, because being dead is going to be awesome, we can invest in eternity by being servants to the people around us now. What I think a lot of philosophers, and there were more I didn't get into, but a lot of the people that I read as I was studying that, that intro, they said this, look, if you're going to be annihilated someday, you got to get all the pleasure that you can now. you got to live your best life now. What is it? Um, you only live once, YOLO, right? That's literally philosophers have that argument. you got to get as much physical pleasure as you can now. But if the gospel is true, then there are going to be two parts to your life. There's going to be this life and your eternal life. And your eternal life is going to be so long and is going to be so um, perfect uh, that you're going to experience life and joy like you can't even imagine. That you don't have to worry about maxing out your pleasure and maxing out fun and all that stuff here now. You you are freed up here and now to serve your king and to find real actual happiness by doing that. And so you can invest in your eternity by being a servant here now. You don't have to get in all your jollies before you die. And so um, what what really happens is knowing that you're going to have all this happiness for all of eternity, it frees you up to do what Jesus asks you to do now, to love and to serve and to do all this stuff for people. Um, not that that stuff doesn't make you happy. That, that kind of came out wrong. But you know what I mean. Um, you don't have to try to just, oh, I, I, I don't have time to serve people now. I have to go and do this other thing that I think will ultimately make me happy even though it won't. Right? Eternal life is Jesus defeating death on our behalf so that we can serve other people. Um, I want to show you from first, I'm going to flip over to First Corinthians. And this is how we're going to end. Um, there's the famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the famous chapter on the, I should have bookmarked this, but I didn't, famous chapter on the resurrection. Okay, quit sticking together, pages. All right, I want to read this part to you. Um, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Um, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of, this, of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so he talks all about, we're heading to eternity. We're going to get these new bodies. It's going to be so wonderful. And then look at how he ends though. Look what he says. So with all that truth, with Jesus, who's the one who can walk up and bring people back to life, the one with the power over life and death, who's going to bring us into eternal life. What do we do with that information? This is what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, the last verse of this chapter, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So with all of that truth, what do we do? The work of the Lord. And what's the work of the Lord? To love our neighbors. Because Jesus has the power over life and death. We don't have to fear death and we're freed up to be the most loving people on the planet. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I mean... You know, people don't really like to talk about death. We like to pretend it's not happening to us or it's not going to happen to us. Um, I don't know. I just pray, Lord, that we will be people with eternal focus. I pray that we would be a people who are so looking forward to eternity that we are immensely useful to you in the here and now. We just pray for 
just chances that you would bring chances to love people um, into our eyes and you would through the power of your Holy Spirit empower us to love them the way that you do and so I just ask Lord that these truths would sink into our hearts and our minds and that they would be life changing that we would just be filled with such a hope um, that it would turn us into um, just the best neighbors around so we pray this in your name amen